0: the power of their data. to Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.
1: The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays
2: Baseball. Swing and a high fly ball. Right field and deep. Geyer to the wall. Rays win. Rays win. Rays win. D-Man Toy with a two-run walk-off home run. The Rays winning ways here in Tropicana Field, did you?
1: Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week. Take a look around Major League Baseball and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. On to line-up, your pitches. Adamas oh. launches one
3: way up into the air in the left field. This one's got a chance. Turning Benintendi, Willie Adamas with his first big-league hit. It's a home run against Chris Sale.
1: Here's your host, Neil Solons.
4: Good morning and welcome to our latest show on deck today Matt Duffy on his return to the lineup Dave Andy NBA on an impressive sweep in Boston Eric Neander on the trade deadline Plus we'll chat with broadcasters from Milwaukee and Miami on the recent additions of Jesus Aguilar, Nick Anderson and Trevor Richards We continue on This Week in Race Baseball Our featured guest this week is Matt Duffy And Matt obviously one of the reasons we have you back is you are back So welcome back What does it mean to be on the field again?
5: A lot, yeah. Obviously, I think that the toughest part about being on the injured list for any player is the mental side of, you know, just not contributing. You kind of feel like you're just around, taking up space, and uh, you know everybody wants you back. But to be back and contributing and, and grinding again with the guys is, I don't know, that's what it's about for us as players. So to be back in there, you know, that's that's everything.
4: You say holding space, but I know a lot of guys in that clubhouse you still have value with. Is it? Easier though to have an impact when you are playing versus not, and how so?
5: Um, I mean, definitely. Like, I guess it's a I don't know. It's a much more tangible thing that you can point to when you're actually on the field. Like that's, you know, I'm, I'm doing something here. You know, you try to help guys when you're when you're not playing. You try to point out things that hey, I see you kind of doing this. I don't know if this would help you. Maybe maybe not. You know, and you try to do that all the time. But uh, you know, definitely being on the field and, and helping actively helping the team win games is what we all want to be doing.
4: And you certainly have done that in the last week and a half. How different was this experience coming back versus, let's say, other injuries that you've had to deal with?
5: You know, I, I wasn't, I don't know, I, I compare it to like 2017, that was extremely frustrating. And you know, with Achilles injuries, there's always the talk about if you're ever going to be the same player again, and I really wasn't sure. Um, but this one, I don't know, it was, it was a light hamstring strain that we just quite couldn't figure out. It wasn't something that I was worried about my career, I guess. And and if I was going to be the same guy, I knew it. once we got it figured out, it was probably going to be something that I would laugh at, you know, years down the road. So I wasn't as frustrated. It was more of like a just nose to the grindstone type of thing. And let's just keep working, keep working, keep working. And, you know, eventually we figured it out. We had a chat on
4: a previous show with a guy that you've gotten to know a whole lot better in Tyler Glass now. And he spoke about how mentally tough you are and how you were able to hand things, handle things as well as anyone he's seen. What does it mean to hear something like that?
5: Uh, that's, I mean, that's a lot. He's my roommate, so we get plenty of time to, to kind of you know, hash things out about what we're going through, about what different guys might be going through, and we bounce ideas off of each other no matter how crazy or stupid they might sound. But um, because of that, we we kind of come out of those conversations with a lot of different, um, I guess, mental tools and, and things that we can each go to to, to combat insecurities or uh you know times when baseball makes you feel like you've never swung a bat in your life because you know that can happen um and and we're human beings just like everybody else we have bad days and good days and bad weeks and good weeks and you know trying not to let just a bad day turn into a bad week and a bad month and understanding that that's part of the game and part of life is there's ups and downs and you got to take them in stride and continue to work on the things that you know that that make you good and, and keep you consistent and not let the mind kind of go with all the insecurities that you might be feeling or, or hearing from, you know, social media or whatever it is.
4: Do you even look at social media anymore?
5: Not anymore. Yeah. To me, it's just, I don't know. I think it's good for a lot of different things. You know, keeping in touch with friends and family is, is definitely a positive, but in terms of like on field performance, I think a lot of it is, is just noise. Um, so I try to ignore it as best as possible.
4: You also mentioned the human aspect of this and, I think this is probably one of those weeks where sometimes we don't understand the, the challenges of the human aspects of the trade deadline. You were dealt to the Rays three years ago. How difficult was that at the time, and how has that experience helped you?
5: You know, that was, that was tough. The only place I had been was San Francisco, um, getting traded away from a contender. When, when, when you're on a contending team, you know, with the trade deadline, you're always thinking, how can, how can we get better as a team? And oftentimes that doesn't involve you being traded away. I talked to Stanek a little bit yesterday and, you know, he is kind of in that same situation and it's tough. And, you know, for me, it was like, God, it was, you know, it was almost like getting broken up with a little bit, but you got to realize that things aren't always going to be like when I first came here, things weren't the greatest. And Stanek being in a new environment that where things aren't the greatest, but, you know, you have to look forward and uh, understand that, The team is going to get better. That's what they're going to be looking to do over there, and he's going to be a big part of that. Uh, And that's the exciting part, the flip side of the, I guess, it's like getting broken up with while also (laughs) somebody else welcoming you with open arms at the same time. It's kind of a really strange uh, feeling. I think another positive was being in a new environment. You get to see, oh, there's another way to do things that also works, And, and that way that things were done over there, worked for them and it doesn't mean that's the only way that things can be done so I think opening my eyes to like a new philosophy and a new environment really kind of um, I don't know just in general makes you think like what other ways are there to do stuff that's that, that can possibly work for me or for us or you know for whatever
4: chatting with Matt Duffy on this weekend raised baseball fast forward to now in this trading deadline how different has the experience been to see guys come into the clubhouse being back in a group that's competing for a playoff spot
5: It's nice, I kind of, you know, I I just kind of watch try to, you know, introduce myself and and understand that they're going to forget everybody's names like that and that they're probably not really sure uh, what city they're in at the moment and uh, what day it is, and it's kind of a whirlwind when you get traded, so you just try to let the guys take a minute to breathe, get them on the field because that's where we're all really at home, and, you know, really once you get on the field and you get a rhythm there – then the kind of off-the-field stuff really starts to settle in. But you just try to make guys feel as welcome as possible and understand that you know, we're all a bunch of different guys in here, but we're all working towards the same goal uh, and and try to get them on board with that as quickly as possible.
4: You're tuned to the game, though, pretty well. When you saw the names that the Rays were acquiring, Eric Sogard, Jesus Aguiar, and then saw the arms that they brought in and Nick Anderson and Peter Fairbanks eventually, and Trevor Richards will be here eventually. What was your... Your thought as a player wanting to get to the postseason?
5: Uh, I think they definitely make our team better. You know, we had to part ways with uh, with pieces that were were well liked in the clubhouse and and were all also big parts of, of what we've done up to this point. But you know, with with Aguilar especially, we, I mean, he's all star. What he's seen, what what he's done last year, and um, you know, it seems like he's picked it up over the last month. And I think that's that's the exact type of guy that the Rays go for, the guys that maybe are cast away from other organization because it hasn't gone well lately, but it's just a perfect fit when you, when you take a step back and look at it. You know, and obviously the stuff from, from Nick Anderson uh, is, is there, and I think his, uh, his pitching, I don't know, his repertoire profile, I don't know what you would call it, works really well with what our philosophy is here as well. You know, I got to see Peter pitch in Triple a little bit when I was on my rehab assignment. His stuff is ridiculous as well with a really funky arm slot um, and arm motion. You know, and Eric Sogard, I worked out with him this offseason. Just a great dude. Um, and obviously he's been doing it for a long time, just a solid player. And I think that's the type of guys, when I look at, you know, our success as a team, I think when we, when we lengthen out the lineup with guys like that, um, it just makes it really tough on an opposing pitcher, you know, when you have – I don't know a guy like Chris Sale at 100 pitches through five innings, and it seems like the whole road trip we had we had starting pitchers on the other team that were just really struggling for quick outs, you know. And that's I think that really grinds down an opposing pitching staff.
4: In fact, I remember Tommy Pham said basically the same after the game. We got Jesus, and we got Sogar, and we got Duffy back, and everyone's grinding, uh, and we're making it hard on everybody else. Do you kind of feel that's going to be the key to the final seven, eight weeks of the season here, that that's what you guys need to do as a group to get back to, let's say, what the last two months were last year?
5: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, at least offensively. Um, you know, when you when you think about the teams that are tough to face or that are stressful to face, I guess, from an offensive standpoint, you think about the Red Sox and the Yankees. The Yankees do it a little differently. They're, um, they're kind of stressing you out with power throughout the lineup. And I think however you do it, if – If the opposing pitcher knows every single guy that steps in the box is going to be a pain to get out, maybe not a homer, but uh, just constant pressure in terms of you can't take a pitch off. Again, I really think it grinds down a pitching staff uh, in general. Um, And if you can, like a first day of a series, you can get a Chris Sale out in five innings, even if he only gave up, I don't know how many runs he gave up, one or two maybe, is that what it was? you know that's that's tough for an opposing team and i know as a defender when i'm facing an offense that is like that that is constantly grinding out of bats it's like god these guys just don't go away you know and that kind of psychological battle that uh the other team has to deal with is it's stressful and it makes the pitches that they do throw uh there's you know there's a reason why high leverage is high leverage innings they count versus low leverage is um you know, It matters, um, so I think, yeah, definitely over the last two months if we can continue to do that. Does it help also to
4: add guys like Sogard and Aguero who have been to the postseason? I mean, you've won a World Series. Charlie Morton has is, is won a World Series. Uh, Tommy Pham has been to the postseason. To have a couple more guys who have been there, done that.
5: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think every guy is going to react differently in, in big situations and big games and postseason stuff like that. Um, I think the more you're in situations like that, the better – you are equipped to, to deal with the, the pressure and the just the heightened level of uh, intensity on every pitch because that's really what it is. It's not, I mean, most guys at some point have played in a very high-pressure situation, but when you get to the postseason and, and those games in late uh, September down the stretch, it's not necessarily that, <laughs> that there's one pitch that is any bigger than other ones, but it's just constantly from pitch one, to the last pitch of the ninth inning or whatever inning it is, every pitch feels like two outs in the ninth. Um, From the start of the game, I mean, you know, down the stretch we get there and hopefully into the postseason, pitch one of the game, the crowd's going to go nuts based on the result, whether it's the visiting crowd or our crowd. Um, and, And being able to handle that level of stress for three, potentially four hours, you know, that can wear on you. So I think having more guys like that around that have dealt with that, um, it definitely helps the people around. Uh, I think when when I looked at my time in the postseason, I was big-eyed and no clue what was going on. You know, the situation was honestly way bigger than I re- even realized, which I think helped me, but being around a bunch of guys on the team that I was on with no pulse, all of them, uh, that really helped me stay calm as well, just like, oh, they're not freaking out. Like, it's fine. Just see the ball and hit the ball. That's it.
4: And that group was your family, and I know how fa- important family is to you. To go back to the West Coast on this next trip, will you get to see family in San Diego? And if so, what will that mean?
5: Yeah, I've got quite a few family coming down. Um, it'll be nice. I haven't seen them in a long time. You know, they it kills them being so far from home. So, uh, you know, i am I'm so busy every single day that I don't get to stop and think about it too much. You know, I miss them, obviously. But they, it, it, my parents especially, it really kills them being so far away from, from baseball. And, and, you know, they, they love watching baseball. They love watching me play. So I enjoy watching them have joy for it. It's just, I don't know, I, I know how much they miss me. And, and, again, I miss them. But I guess a parent's love doesn't compare. You know, it's just they, I don't know, they love me more than they love themselves. Um, so to be able to, to see them again, it's going to mean a lot.
4: Well, hopefully, there's some postseason games on the West Coast, too.
5: That would be nice.
4: Matt, thanks for a few minutes on This Week in Race Baseball. Continued success on the field in these last couple months. Thanks, Neil. That's Matt Duffy. We'll continue on This Week in Race Baseball in just a moment. You're listening to the Race Baseball Network. Welcome back to This Week in Race Baseball. Neil Solon's with you, and what a week it's been for the Rays. And joining me to chat about it, Andy, Dave, and also Brian Anderson from Fox Sports Sod. Morning, guys.
6: What's happening? Good morning, Neil. Good morning.
4: If Where were your minds, let's say, on Sunday when this week started? The Rays had just lost a 10-9 game the day before when they were up by six runs uh, or seven runs. They're down 8-1 in the middle portion of this game, and they come back to win. Middle portion of the game, what are you guys thinking at that point, and how surprised are you at the way the week has gone since?
6: Well I think like anybody else you're, you're thinking to yourself with Boston looming after the way that Boston played against the Rays here you can't have this I mean these are the winnable games that you have to go on the road or even at home and win so you have that horrifying loss on Saturday now you're down you know eight to one on Sunday and you're thinking to yourself is this the beginning of the spiral where they start to fall out of this thing? Um, as opposed to coming back and winning that game. I mean, that was the thought. Is, is this the beginning of the end, really? Honestly, I think I felt worse
2: going into the game, though, because I, I know Andy and I were talking about it in the broadcast booth at that particular time, saying that, you know, playoff teams don't lose games like the the, the game we lost on Saturday. And that was 8-1. to I'm not going to lie to you. At that time, I looked at Andy and I said, hey, why don't we just return the favor? We gave them a seven-run uh, comeback the night before, so kind of jokingly said, now we got them right where we ha- want them and we're going to come back and i didn't see it happening but we did and uh, it's it's turned the whole week around but you know again that what happened on saturday obviously doesn't happen to too many playoff teams and uh, that stuff that needs to be rectified and I still think there's a little bit of a residual effect now from the rest of the season on where you're really not going to feel 100% until you get the 26th and 27th hours. Well I'll
3: be honest I mean uh, and it doesn't reflect very well on me but you know Dave sounds like he's the excitable one on the air and he probably is but I, I walked out of that booth on Saturday in Toronto going you know what I'm not so sure this team has it. And, and lo and behold, they came back Sunday, and it reminded me that I've got to practice what I preach. You always say, NBA, you know this, not getting too high when you win, not getting too low when you lose, but this game will test you on that. You know, I, I, 100 plus games into the year, you can't lose games when you're winning, uh, whatever it was, eight to two or whatever the heck it was, nine to two. And lo and behold, it's taught me that lesson again that, you know, sometimes things get crazy uh, in baseball, especially if you get to a a stretch run or a postseason. you know, things get weird. Uh, Things happen that you're not prepared for. Big leads go away, things that the team, you know, how many times do we have to say, this team is designed to win close games and tight games and probably low scoring games? That's not the way the week has gone. And yet they've still won, what, seven out of eight games. So it's been another smack to my head saying, come on, Freed, you gotta practice what you preach. You gotta stay in the middle ground. And thankfully these guys have, because really it's been a week of the hitting, picking up the pitchers.
6: Well, and and doesn't it speak to the character of this team too, the resiliency of this team, and that really does bode well For the stretch run the way that they were able to bounce back like that and not it's not even about bouncing back from the tough Saturday loss and winning on Sunday but it's what we're talking about midway through that game you talk about a group that could have just you know mailed it in and headed to Boston but they they did not do that and I think that that really uh, is you know it's exciting to think about the you know what this team can accomplish here down the stretch.
3: I'm also thinking too, Neil, that in in 2013, we learned the lesson that every single game matters. If one weird loss happens in 13, then they don't get to game 163 to play the Rangers and they don't get to the wild card. So every one of these games now, I know you can't look at it like football, uh, but I can't help but think that each one of these games right
4: now really, really matters. They do. And can you contrast, I mean, the feeling that you guys had Sunday to what it was like Thursday walking out of Boston with a split and an 8-1 and, eight and one record against the Red Sox. The the last team to win eight games there was the 1966 world champion Orioles.
2: Well, I mean, we, we say this every time we walk out of there with a win. There's nothing better. I mean, uh, you know, again, to be able to walk into Fenway Park, quiet the fans down, and, and, and then make it to the point where about the only thing they're looking forward to at the end of the game is to sing in the eighth inning so they can leave. And that seems to be the way things went this year with the Rays in that particular ballpark. And you know, we talked to a couple players after the game and they said that the energy of that place or the, uh, you know, again, it helps them and helped the Rays to that 8-1 mark. But yeah, walking out of there on uh, Thursday night was, uh, was pretty good to be able to go in there and sweep, start to open up a little distance between ourselves and the Red Sox. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it hasn't always been that way in that particular ballpark, but it sure felt good. A lot here in 2019 they're they're a weird team
3: by the way the Reds oh my god that, that's a team that is just as bizarre as they get that hitting is every bit as good as they were last year and with star pitchers everywhere you turn in that rotation and they're all coming up short and, and whether it has to do with the extra innings or whatever from last year and postseason we do know it is hard to come back for whatever reason right or wrong but I mean think that the Rays piled on Price and Porcello and Kashner three legitimate
6: big-league veteran starters.
3: The race just torched them.
6: You know, and that's the thing. When you talk about that Red Sox team, they, they want to focus on the bullpen and the issues out there. By the time the bullpen gets it a lot of times now here, especially here recently, the game's already out of hand. It's the starters not getting the job done. It is kind of crazy when you think about that lineup. You think about the first three guys in that lineup between Betts and Devers and Bogarts, the top three in Major League Baseball in run scored. And you think about the years that these guys are putting together with J.D. Martinez and all that, and yet still it has been somewhat of a train wreck. But what really stood out to me in that series was it was almost like as the series continued on, the Rays were, we're taking the will away from them. The effort level in that third game was awful. Pop-up foul territory, Rafael Devers doesn't even go for it, takes a couple of steps, watches it as it lands on the railing of the raised dugout. Could have been camped underneath it for an out couldn't have been bothered by going over there and doing that and so you just wonder you know these guys are going to swing the bat they're going to put up their numbers but are they going to do the little things that that you need to do to win ball games and is the pitching going to come around all of a sudden they go up to new york in that big series and guess what the yankees have handled them three straight losses in that series so you just wonder uh this boston team is not uh you know circling the drain quickly
4: And now he's lost seven in a row. And you speak of lineups. And to me, the biggest difference in the story this week has been the Rays lineup. And is it me or is there no coincidence that Matt Duffy's in the lineup playing regularly and that has helped along with the additions of Eric Sogard and Jesus Aguilar?
6: Well, I I think professional at-bats. You know what you're thinking about. Eric Sogard knows how to work an at bat. Matt Duffy uses the other side mm-hmm. of the field and works an at bat as well as anybody in this lineup. So you plug them in. You one at the top, one at the you know the, the bottom third, and all of a sudden that lineup gets a little bit thicker. I think that you're you know you Travis Darno continues to swing a, a hot bat. I mean it's it's been really fun to watch because you're getting contributions all the way through. You know there are no dead spots in the lineup right now, and that's the way that you, you hope that things continue and it'll be to see how Kevin Cash continues with the mix because you've got a stronger bench now, you, you know, and with with Aguilar and and Sogard and how he bounces everybody around to keep them fresh and, and locked in.
3: There was one at bat that showed me that exactly what you were talking about in Boston when Kevin Pinch hit Sogard, who hadn't played yet for the Rays for Willie Adamas because Willie's been striking out so much, they needed to move the baseball and Rama. I think it was bases loaded one out in a tight game. I, th- I think it was a tie game at that point and he takes out Adamas, which he hasn't been doing, and he puts guard up simply because he knows he's going to move the baseball. Yeah. He's not going to strike out, and lo and behold, he didn't even hit it well. It's just a tapper. The Rays grabbed the lead and and never gave it back. That was a big yeah. moment, a sea change, really, on how Kevin operates on the. I know we,
2: we we preach versatility, but I think uh, you know again when we look at the uh, the lineup now, we have some diversity to this lineup. It seemed like when you would get one of our guys out you can get almost every one of our guys out because they had kind of the same swing plane, kind of same approach. And now by bringing Duffy in and Sogard and a couple other guys, Darno has slowed the game down a lot. I think we've got guys now that are putting together tougher at-bats because for that stretch there for about the last six weeks, we weren't really making pitchers work hard at all. They were getting two and three pitch at-bats. They were able to get on runs and be able to get to their bullpen just the way they wanted to. And now I think by bringing in a Duffy and by Sogard being added to the list. And then Darno just looks like He's just looking for a particular pitch, and he's spoiling off pitches and giving himself a chance to get a big hit, slowing the moment down, something that a lot of our younger guys weren't doing.
6: Yeah, for me, with Darnot, what you were talking about, uh, the, working these at bats, is his takes. His takes are almost as impressive as the balls that he's putting mm-hmm. into play. Because he, uh, he right now, his strike zone is so well-defined that those balls on the fringe, he's not even flinching. and He's taking them knowing that's a ball. Gets called a strike, that's the umpire, that's on him. But I know that that ball's just off the plate, and the, and they're not that far off the plate, but boy oh boy, does he have a very well-defined strike zone, and that just allows him to settle in and swing it, pitch- is out over the plate, and you see the numbers.
3: Well, a scout said recently that his at-bat against Chapman in New York that won the game oh,
4: was the at-bat
3: of the year yes. that he
2: had seen in Major League Baseball.
4: Can't argue that. From your standpoint, what were you guys thinking after now you've had a couple days to digest what the Rays did at the deadline, and how much it'll help this group going forward in the final two months?
3: Well, I think what what Kevin told us today is that it's a bullpen in flux in the sense that they're, like Chad's row last night, going to second inning and we were asking Kevin about it and you'll hear in the pregame show in a little bit and it comes down to the fact that from the trades that were made some of the guys that would give you two three innings in the bullpen aren't there anymore which is okay but it means that other guys that would basically be one inning guys like a Chaz Rowe, not every time but sometimes are going to be asked to go that second inning or part of that second inning so I think they're trying to figure out exactly what they have here one thing that I'm wondering I found out that Nick Anderson had never gone back to back in terms of days with the Marlins. With this team, he's probably going to have to do that at some point, I would think.
2: Yeah, I still think that health is going to be the biggest thing. This team gets to the postseason if Blake Snell can come back in September and pitch. It gets to the postseason. Tyler Glass now gets back sometime in September. And even in the opener role or maybe as a a bullpen one-inning or two-inning guy can pitch. This team still has to get healthy. This team, I think right now, obviously it's been nice to see them win five games in a row. And are they a playoff team? I think we're kind of in that mix to be a playoff team just like I thought we were at the beginning of the year. But I think if we get healthy, we get some of these guys back and I think Brandon Lau is at the top of that list and we don't even know what's going on with him. It seems like every time we think he's getting closer, he takes two or three steps back and that's hard to do for a guy that's having trouble walking right now with a sore leg so it's a situation here for me uh, I, I we get better if Jose Alvarado comes back and pitches like Jose Alvarado did in April we get better if Diego Castillo pitches like he did yesterday is able to work around the leadoff double something that you know he's really had a tough time doing this year where if the guy gets on base it seems like he always comes around and scores because he doesn't have the swing and miss stuff that he had at the beginning of the year so to me there's the health is still the biggest thing the trade deadline you know, I like the acquisition of Sogard. I'm anxious to see what Aguilar can do here. But we're not going to get there if we're going to by outpounding the Yankees or outscoring teams. We're going to get there by pitching. That's that's run prevention a big big thing with this Rays team. We got to get back to that, and we got to get some of our guys on the mound, get them back healthy.
6: Could not agree more, and I think for me, the trade deadline kind of smoothed the edges to this team. You know, when you bring in a lefty scrapper like an Eric Sogar that has that versatility, you can play him in different places. You bring in the right-handed thump of Jesus Aguilar coming off, you know, 35 home runs, 108 driven in, and the people from Milwaukee say that his month of July has looked much more normal than the beginning of the season, where he got himself into a hole um, out of the gate. And then as far as the pitching staff goes, Nick Anderson uh, on the back end, I agree with you, Anderson. As far as you know, pitching back to back because uh, you know Kevin Cash and, and this staff ask an awful lot of their bullpen, and so that's something that he's probably going to have to adapt to. But you saw last night what he's able to do—just come in and overpower people at the back end of games. And then I'll be interested to see Trevor Richards. Is he going to be the right-handed bulk guy? Maybe you get a, a situation where Pochet is going to be the opener, and then here comes the change of pace righty—you know—to to eat up four or five innings because it seems like he is absolutely built for that role um but it certainly gives Kevin Cash a lot of options and then Dave all of those guys that you mentioned injury uh, you know concerns that if they're able to come back and contribute boy does this team get strong uh, in a hurry in
3: other words I think we all agree this week has been more the aberration we're not going to win a lot of eight to five games if that's the way we have to win it's going to have to be through pitching and defense
4: guys good stuff have a good call today
2: thank you you, thanks for having us Neil
4: That's Dave Andy, NBA. We pause for station identification on the Rays Baseball Network.
1: WTAE St. Petersburg, WBTP HD3 Clearwater, W224 BE Brandon, and W237 CW Pinellas Park.
4: Well, we continue on this week in Rays Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. The Rays made eight trades the final three weeks of July. I sat down with senior VP and GM Eric Neander and asked him where he felt the team was better in the short and long term.
7: Short term. We added a couple of veteran position players, Eric Sogard, that really helps to offset the losses we've had via injury um, and really strengthen us when those guys are back, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and we can we can experience that at some point. He has enough versatility to um, to fit us in a variety of ways as well. Good hitter, good baseball player. Uh, I think the example the other night when he came off the bench with a runner on third, less than one and put a ball in play to, to get that run in. Those are little things that aren't always the most visible. Um, he's he's going to help us. He's going to help us win games in and, and the subtle ways. Uh, Jesus Aguilar, right-handed bat, power, uh, first base DH. Uh, we're looking for something to complement what we have on hand, uh, not just short term, but for the next couple of months and beyond, hopefully. And he, he does that. He's somebody coming off of a season, wanted someone, ideally, with a little credibility uh, that, that had something under him. and coming off of a 35-homer, 100-RBI, all-star season with a deep postseason run uh, and very well-liked behind the scenes in the clubhouse. That checked a lot of boxes. had been a tough few months for him offensively and, and couldn't really get himself going. But uh, crazier things have happened than uh, somebody basically having a – mental reset, uh, stat line reset, hitting a new organization and starting the season over, that can really free someone up. And we're hopeful, based on what we've seen, that uh, we can get something closer to the version that we saw last year, more so than the version we saw this year. Uh, so, And then beyond that, Nick Anderson, someone that, um, well, not widely known, I think, but uh, you know and doesn't have a lengthy track record an older rookie <laughs> um, uh, but has has overcome a lot has persevered to put himself in a position we're talking about someone that has top of the line ability from a strikeout standpoint he he puts the ball on the on the plate uh, doesn't walk a lot of guys we think he's someone that has right now high leverage uh, deep in game end of game type ingredients and uh, will be a nice complement to our our mix um, to help try to lock down the late innings. So, and the cost for doing that for us was uh, thinning our pitching depth, you know, our our reliever. Um, depth the guys that have been up and down a little bit and really guys that did a nice job for us uh, but we had to make some difficult decisions and uh, in order to get some of the pieces we felt were more specific needs for us we had to uh, we had to make those decisions to thin some things out there um, as well and that also dovetails into just overall management of our 40 man roster and things that we have to account for uh, over the next couple of months as some guys hopefully come off the 60 and and setting it
4: uh, in in november as well Before we get into a little more detail on that, one deadline this year, how did it change the dynamic? How much more difficult was it this year to deal with things? Because there were a lot of teams that had guys with expiring contracts that didn't move, which is kind of a little surprising.
7: Yeah, uh, this is it. There's no opportunity. Uh, Usually, we we plan to take care of our business by the end of July, regardless. And if something comes together in August, great, Uh, but not something we typically plan for. But this is a year where you don't even have that option uh, for something to to come together in August. So you have to be really certain with what you have on hand. And that was part of, you know, Trevor Richards was someone that uh, we we needed to make sure that we were stronger, deeper when it comes to our starters and bulk guys than than we are at present uh, to get through the rest of the season. And Uh, He's someone we're excited about, bigger picture, longer term. Uh, But for now, that was uh, a need for us that we were able to address and and paid a price to do it. But you have to be ready to go. So guard. these are things that maybe it leads you in August uh, to making some difficult decisions with respect to guys you might need to option short term and the like uh, to get through it. But uh, would much rather face difficult decisions for having too many players available to us than, than too few. And uh, we'll, we'll take that side of it. And the spirit of what we're trying to do is to be as competitive uh, the rest of the way as we can.
4: And that's the way we decide to do it. And nationally, I guess when I'm talking about trades, you, you know, you, naturally everyone say, oh, this guy will get moved, this guy will get moved. And there are a lot of guys who didn't, perhaps because they were still felt they were in contention or whatever. Did that make this a harder uh, deadline in terms of trying to just make acquisitions? Uh, I think
7: there. have been more teams that have remained in it this year than than there have been recently and that the supply itself perhaps was more limited in that sense but you know we try to be in tune with the market Uh, we try to be aware of what's accessible and at the end of the day we we just have to focus on that so whether we wish there were additional possibilities or not um, you just you gotta you got to go with what you have and we feel like we've surveyed the club's pretty well to know what is, was potentially feasible, what might not be, and uh, made, made the most within uh, those parameters and really excited for the way it came together.
4: The Aguiar and Solgard editions. how valuable is their clubhouse importance and also the fact that both have been through playoff races where you do have a team that doesn't have a lot of that?
7: Yeah, it's, it's something that we've spent a lot of time on. Um, there's, there's no measuring it. You know, these are intangibles. These are... Um, stabilizing forces when you get in the pressurized environments. I I would say uh, we think the world of the group we have, and if you you look up and down our roster, these are guys that by and large had to overcome a lot of adversity, had to demonstrate a lot of persistence to get the opportunities that that they have, and those are life experiences that can serve them really well and have when it comes to our our clubhouse culture and the way we compete and so on, but uh, there's no substitute uh, for the experience that comes with playing deep into the postseason and uh, those are different stresses pressures and, and frankly even the games we're having right now when you go to Yankee Stadium in Boston when you're competing that's very different than the experiences last summer when we were playing well uh, because we were coming from behind so that's a big deal um, I think it's really nice for the guys to have a few additional reference points on top of Duff and someone that's played in the World Series etc but we don't have many so that was certainly a value and we prioritized what they could do for us on the field, but those experiences were were absolutely a factor as well
4: how similar is aguilar to tommy Pham in that i look at his numbers his chase rate didn't go up a lot from last year uh he was staying in the strike zone he was making contact fair amount of hard contact can you draw any similarities between the fact that the numbers were down i know the power was down but the other stuff looked pretty similar
7: yeah i think uh there's probably some relationship there and like i said earlier the uh, i think there's a real benefit to the fresh start to the reset when 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 something like that happens and you struggle for a few months and and you're fighting through it yeah we 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 think not going to sit here and suggest that we believe he's going to put up the season he had last year that's a career type of Season a signature season for him, but what we're what we see in you know his at bats and the way he's impacting the baseball, the way he's using the field, it's not that different. So we're optimistic. The true Aggie is something that is a lot closer to what he did last year than than what we've seen so far this year. And. Uh, if we look back and it, it plays out like Tommy, I think we'll all be in a, a really good place here <laughs> in a few months. And uh, we'll be really pleased with that, but um, don't want to put those expectations on him just yet.
4: You mentioned the Blake Snell injury and the him and Tyler. How much did Yandy and Brandon Lau's injuries impact what you did at the deadline, knowing there was just one deadline?
7: Quite a bit. It was, or it at least opened our our minds up to... Considering a Sogard an acquisition, and and the fact that that Soga is someone that can play a variety of positions, can go infield, can go outfield, play him well, um, that that really helps because this is this is what you got. And we got some guys in triple-a that have played really well for us, and they're they're going to be in the mix here too as we as we move along. But just felt that the the acquisition cost to get someone with his experience, with the contact ability, and the way he kind of fits the bigger puzzle of our club right now was was huge, and and really can cover us as we. Wait for some guys to, to return and, and not just cover us, but he'll be a big part of our team even upon them returning.
4: And you alluded to it. You're a thirty eight men on the forty now. You have some guys you have to protect come November. You also have some guys who I could argue are deserving of an opportunity now. How much of that played into the decision to move some players that it's tough to move, but you have a roster crunch coming?
7: Yeah, it's, that's something that wasn't lost on us and the priority was to see what we could do to help our major league team in a responsible fashion. But there was a secondary goal, which was to manage our 40-man, improve our flexibility, and put ourselves in a position where – uh, we we have a little more maneuverability with with our options to round it out uh, over the next couple of months. So absolutely, the guys that we have off roster uh, in Durham and even a few below have done a really nice job, and uh, that that's in you know part of our thought process here as well.
4: And making room for Vonda and Glass now, hopefully at some point.
7: Yeah, absolutely. That when Anthony comes off the sixty day, which we fully expect based on his rehab progression, and, and Tyler, we're still counting on making a return this year. Those are two sixty. Uh, 60 IL spots 60 day IL spots that uh, will be transitioned to 40 man spots and we'll need to make room for them so just gives us an opportunity to create some flexibility in advance of that and in the process acquire a few prospects uh, that are further away uh, but guys that we like and that one day they'll help us out up here.
4: And that is Ray, Senior VP and GM Eric Neander with perspective locally on the players the race received and now for an outside look I spoke with Brewers broadcaster Jeff Levering about Jesus Aguilar to get his take on the difference between Aguilar this season and last.
8: It's really been interesting watching Jesus and what he's been able to do Neil of course in 2017 is really when he broke out he was not an everyday player he was a nice fill in piece, and was a great pinch hitter off the bench, at 16, 17 home runs. And then last year, he just totally busted out 35 home runs for him. And, and a guy who didn't, he had one home run going into the month of May. And then from May until the end of July is when he was really at his best. And the second half kind of dipped down a little bit more. But he just really established himself in the middle of that Brewers order last year. And, and the Brewers wouldn't have gone to the playoffs and won the division without what he did. Um, he's also a very underrated defensive first baseman. and I think a lot of people don't realize how good he is over at first. He's nimble for as big as he is. Uh, everything that's that's his, uh, hit his way, in field, he's a good picker over there at first base. Saves a lot of errors from the defense. But the, for whatever reason, he got off to a really slow start. He was given the keys to first base at the beginning of this season. Um, it felt like he was trying to do a little bit too much. There have been conversations about his... Um, His ability not to to get out in front of of counts uh, felt like every time he was coming to the plate in the first two months, he was down 0-1, down 0-2, and that's just not a good recipe for success for, for anybody, not just Jesus Aguilar. So for him, he was just in a lot of defensive counts, and the power numbers just haven't been there for him. He just couldn't quite get going. I think having him go to an American League ball club where he doesn't have to play first base, he can DH when you need him, Um, he's good against lefties and righties, I think he's just going to thrive down in Tampa.
4: And it sounds like it's a good situation for both sides, because Jake Ferreira would appear to have an opportunity to pitch more regularly in relief as he's transitioned there, um, as the Brewers are looking for pitching in their run for the Central.
8: I agree. I think Jake Faria is a really big deal for the Brewers. He pitched really well against Milwaukee down in Tampa Bay down in 2017. I remember that start pretty vividly. Just, just really in command from pitch number one against Milwaukee. I know he's a different pitcher now, uh, but the Brewers have a guy in Junior Garrow that's very similar to what Jake Faria has, splitter usage, uh, good high velocity and fastball. and The way that the Brewers are, are going to be going in this National League Central against the Cubs and the Cardinals, Only have one more series against Cincinnati, two more against the Pirates. You're looking at a lot of left-handed batters and a lot of left-handed power. So for a guy like Faria to come in, and though he's not left-handed, that splitter works really well against left-handed hitters. Uh, He's going to be a key piece in that Brewers bullpen.
4: Yeah, he definitely has been much more, I would say, reverse split uh, as a right-hander so far uh, this season. In Jesus' case, to get back to you know his struggles earlier this year, his July looked a little bit more like he did last year on paper. Was he more like that from your standpoint, seeing him every day?
8: He was, um, and he was getting ahead in counts. That was the thing I mentioned earlier that he was taking a lot of first pitch strikes and I feel like the league kind of got the book on him on hey look he's going to take a first pitch strike why don't you screw one he's not going to swing at it anyway well he started swinging at a couple of first pitches and, and he was getting some base hits, and he was getting some doubles again the power just wasn't as as prevalent as it was a year ago But at the same time, he was getting himself in better counts, and he was being more productive at that. So I I think that's a really big piece to what Aguilar brings to the table is is his aggressiveness. He's a good two-strike hitter, but there's only so much you can do with two strikes. He's changed up his mechanics a little bit as well. He's he's more wide open. He rests the bat on his shoulder. He's ready to go. So I I think the month of July is more indicative of who he is as a hitter, as he is as a baseball player, than what he was for the first three months of the
4: season. And for a guy who has power, he seems to have pretty good contact skills looking at all his numbers across.
8: Yeah, he does, and he's he's cut down on the strikeouts big time. You expect a guy with that much power to strike out a lot. I mean, he's a big dude. I mean, he's 6'3", 6'4", and he's listed probably 250 pounds. He's every bit of 275 or 280. Again, he's a big dude, but he's a big teddy bear. So uh, the guys in the clubhouse are going to love him. He's going to do great. I think Tampa is really going to thrive with him at first base. And, and you get to reunite the Clans with G-Man Choi, too. I mean, that was a first-base <laughs> platoon for the Brewers last year for a little bit.
4: And, and on that end, I mean, you mentioned clubhouse fit. Uh, obviously, that's a very important piece, I'm sure, of the Brewers, but certainly the Rays. What made him a good guy in the clubhouse?
8: He's just very uh, energetic and always kind of messing around a little bit. He keeps people on their toes. There's, there's a couple of moments where – He and Orlando Arcea, the Brewers' shortstop, have have become really close. Of course, they're both from Venezuela, and they've known each other forever. But there have been times where Arcea will mimic some of Aguilar's motions over first base. And Jesus will do the very same thing of of Arcea's motions. And and, Jesus is over there playing shortstop and batting practice and trying to field ground balls, trying to compete with Orlando. He's over at third base and trying to make... No look throws to first. I mean, he he just tries to keep things loose as much as you can. And you got to have that in 162 games. You got to have that loose factor. And but when push comes to shove, he's a very very passionate player. He likes he likes hitting in the clutch. He's been very good in those situations of late. But for for Jesus, he's just going to be an immediate fit in that clubhouse. He's going to walk in the door, and it's going to be like he's been there for 10 years.
4: And that's Brewers broadcaster Jeff Levering a new edition Jesus Aguilar. The Rays got two players from the Marlins on deadline day, and I asked Marlins radio broadcaster Glenn Guffner about the character of Nick Anderson and Trevor Richards.
1: Well, they are actually a very similar backgrounds, and both of them are uh, Frontier League survivors and uh, pitchers who flourished coming out of the Frontier League. Trevor Richards grew up in a small town in downstate Illinois, Abbott Illinois, uh, not too far from St. Louis. Uh, went to a small Division Three college, wasn't drafted, coming out of Drury University, wound up in the Frontier League. And next thing you know, a couple of years later, he's in the big league. Uh, Nick Anderson, another player who pitched at a small college and uh, wound up playing for not just a Frontier League team, but a Frontier League team that didn't even have a home. They they played all their games on the road, the Frontier League Grays, they called them, the Frontier Grays for a season. Uh, and, and so he overcame that rocky beginning, to get to the big leagues this year for the first time is now a 29-year-old rookie. He was 28 when the year began. Uh, this is a guy who had put up good numbers in AAA for the Minnesota Twins last year, had a great year, never got a crack at the big league level though because of a 40-man roster issue. And uh, Marlins are really excited to be able to steal him from Minnesota in a minor league trade this past offseason. He got off to a nice start. But these are two guys who paid a lot of dues along the way. So while they're young major league pitchers, uh, they're not young necessarily. They've seen a lot. They've been through a lot. In both cases, Neil, they really appreciate the opportunity they have now.
4: And I would assume that their perseverance is something about the kind of character those both guys have.
1: No question. And, uh, you know, it's not easy for anybody. You can be a number one pick and have to persevere on your climb to the minor leagues to get to the big leagues You deal with adversity at this level. But both of them, I think, when you look at their life stories and what they went through to get to this point uh, have a unique understanding of what it takes of, of what the journey is all about what the challenges are uh, and I think that makes it special to be able to have success at this level
4: for Nick Anderson obviously you don't strike out 13 and a half guys per nine innings uh, without having really good stuff what makes him special what makes him hard to square up
1: he's a two-pitch pitcher fastball curveball and uh, the fastball, usually 95, 96, the curveball in the mid 80s. Uh, and he just has done a great job just about all year keeping hitters off balance with two pitches. If he's able to command both, and you'll throw both in or near the strike zone. He's very, very effective. The only times he seemed to struggle this year, he had a few outings that inflated the CRA a little bit, was when they used him a little bit too much, maybe three times in four days or four times in six days. So as time went on, they were careful to try to not use Nick. Uh, too much and to kind of pick their spots with him. But uh, he had gone from a guy who, you know, made the team coming out of spring training as a surprise to a lot of people, to all of a sudden guy pitching high-leverage innings for the Marlins over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, and when Sergio Romo was traded last Saturday, the thought was that Anderson probably was the front runner to become the closer here now, uh, and he's pitched in some big spots for this team. But uh, with two pitches, he's done a great job keeping hitters off balance all season.
4: Is it more what you would call kind of a guy who works up down fastball up curveball down, or does he work side to side too?
1: You know he does a little bit of everything. He uses all four quadrants, and that's part of it also. Having two pitches, and uh, he's been able to you know have a lot of success uh, for a guy who hadn't pitched in the big leagues before. He'd had a great year at AAA last year, uh, and the Marlins were really high in him. I know even going back to spring training this year, talking with Michael Hill. Uh, about some dark horse type guys, and Nick Anderson was the first name he mentioned. And we saw him in the spring. Everybody really liked what they saw. Uh, he got up here, got off to a terrific start. Then had a couple of rock outings, but uh, for the most part he settled in, and he was fun to watch. So he is a guy who will use all four quadrants play with those two pitches and more times to not get the job done.
4: On the other side, uh, Trevor Richards is more of a, a longer guy. He had started primarily, got moved to the bullpen recently. It appears the Rays are going to stretch him back out and use him in bulk. What are his strengths? I've heard his changeup is his best pitch.
1: Changeup is what really sets him apart. For him, though, the issue as a starter has been really the lack of a good third or fourth pitch. He's got a fastball. It's usually 91-92, but it is a successful pitch for him. He's able to command it because the changeup is so good. He struggled last year with a slider. This year they shelved the slider. He started throwing a curveball and a cut fastball and really didn't have a lot of faith in those pitches. And for the most part, he was still a two-pitch pitcher. And it's hard to get by as a two-pitch pitcher as a starter three times through the lineup, no matter how good that changeup is. Uh, and when he got into trouble, it was often because he just couldn't command the fastball. And if you're not throwing the fastball for a strike, that changeup becomes pretty hittable. So last year, the changeup was virtually unhittable for most of the year. This year, some hitters had success against because he struggled for good stretches commanding the fastball. Uh, And then toward the end of his time here, the decision was made to move him into the bullpen, where he could get by with just those two pitches primarily, an inning or two at a time. And we'd seen him a couple of times out of the bullpen, and he pitched well. Uh, He seemed to me like a guy probably better suited to pitching in relief, using those two pitches, unless he can somehow really master a third pitch or you know, even ideally a fourth pitch. As a starter.
4: You mentioned the the third time through issues. A lot of times the Rays have used some of these guys in bulk where they only have to use them twice through. Or when they do three, it's for the bottom portion of the order. How much more effective could that make him potentially?
1: I think that potentially makes him much more effective. I don't think there's any question about that. When he's on, when he's commanding the fastball, that changes a devastating pitch. We talk about it all the time. You know, you could tell a hitter it's coming, and he has no chance against it when, when he's really on top of his game. Uh, he's fun to watch because, again, the fast is only ninety one, ninety two, but that changeup is so effective. And then you see late defensive swings on a 92-mile-per-hour fastball and hitters going down. So I think handling that way might be a, a good way to have success with him.
4: And that is Marlins broadcaster Glenn Geffner. The Rays, of course, wrap up the short two-game series with Miami today. Thanks to Glenn and all the guests in the program today, including Matt Duffy, Andy, Dave, and Brian Anderson, Eric yeah. Neander, Rays senior VP in GM, as well as Brewers broadcaster in Jeff Levering. If you ever have something you want to hear on the program, just tweet me at Neil Solons or at Rays Radio. Next week, one of the newcomers, Eric Sogard, and a whole lot more. From my producer, Derek DuBose, Neil Solons saying, stay tuned, the pregame show is next on the Rays Baseball Network.